Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Joining us on the podcast today is Denise Chisholm, Director of Quantitative Market Strategy. Denise speaks with host Pamela Ritchie about a narrowing of market breadth in the aftermath of the Fed's efforts to replenish cash reserves and how she sees this impacting short-term market performance. Denise explains with only a few stocks leading in the market, the underlying trend becomes far less robust, which increases vulnerability. There are several ways, she says, that gaps in an upwardly advancing market led by a handful of stocks can be closed. Either markets can correct back to a downward trend in breadth or breadth could advance, which has historically been the case. Turning to the job market, Denise says things are slowing but not stopping with contractionary household employment trends suggesting that the Fed may impose additional rate hikes. This episode was recorded on June 6, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Hi, Denise. Hi, Pamela. How are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? It's not raining here, so I'm definitely well. Yeah, let's go with that. That's great. Awesome. Well, great to see you. A couple of days ago, I felt like everyone was talking about bad breath because all over (laughs) media and other things, we kept hearing people mispronounce the term bad breath, which is the market breath itself. So we're going to focus on that. Um, Let's focus on that. We'll wrap in a few indicators that have come in over the last little while. But okay, not a whole lot of stocks taking the market higher, good or bad. Right. I think that the narrative is certainly that it's bad because it's suggestive of the fact that if only a few of the stocks are leading, then the underlying trend isn't robust and then the market is vulnerable. Though you can actually look through history and see if that is the case. I mean, for the first, I would tell you that the top five stocks, that sort of quote around driving the market returns, we're actually from a market cap perspective, we're no near, no way near around historical highs. Uh, that we've seen in even the 70s, like the 70s had actually a higher concentration of stocks driving returns. So it it doesn't look disproportionate from that perspective. And second of all, when you think about absolute returns, you think about 50% of the stocks in the S&P being up year to date, which when you think about it that way, isn't quite so negative either. But I think that the part people are focused on is that breadth in terms of the percentage of stocks in the S&P 500 outperforming their benchmark. Uh, And we have data that goes back to 1928. And what you'll see is we're the lowest that we've been at 38%, so just over a third of stocks in the overall index beating the S&P 500. That's the lowest we've seen since 2020, essentially, and definitely in the bottom quartile of all that range of historical data that we have going back to 1928. And if you look then historically what happens, what you'll find is a very clear, consistent relationship through the decades that the more narrowed the market is, 
the higher your returns on average and the higher the odds of an advancing market over the next 12 months. Part of that, so the reason is twofold. One, that we always talk about on this webcast, what happened in the past is actually the most predictive. So if you think about what got you into this mess, once you're at that 38th percentile or sort of bottom third or bottom quartile relative to history, you've already seen below average market returns. No surprise, we've checked that box, checks. So how do you resolve that tension between the fact that we've seen an upwardly advancing market, but it's only led by a few handful of stocks? Theoretically, you could close that gap one of two ways. The market could correct back to that sort of down, downside trend in terms of breath, or breath could advance. 80% of the time, breath actually advances. So not only is this not a negative signal, I would say, A, it's a positive signal, and it's more reflective of the fact that the market has been poor already. Right. Okay. And and is looking through in that way. Um, yes. So take us through your analysis of sort of which sectors, or are we still talking about, you know, a market of stocks and sectors aren't relevant here, but we've certainly seen the tech sector guide things higher. Is there a particular sector that that looks like it could follow? Yes. So I think that we will see that broadening out, right? So that's the bet. I think technology is still an overweight. I think that there's still opportunities. So I don't think tech is done, even given the the um, inflection we've seen. And we can certainly talk about that. I think the number two sector that hasn't seen the inflection that's likely to follow based on the indicators that I look at is consumer discretionary. That's the most opportunistic space that I see in the market. There are other areas in the market which have positive risk rewards, and it's nothing defensive. It's everything cyclical or economically exposed the way I look at it. And part of it is based on valuation, right? So relative price to book for an equal weighted you know, consumer discretionary index, we are back down to bottom decile levels. So what we saw in terms of the, the shock that turned out to be not quite as much of a shock from a banking crisis perspective as we perceived, there was no sudden stop in the economy, at least right. not yet. Um, and that really lowered the valuation in small and mid caps. So any equal weighted benchmark you're looking at, whether or not it's consumer discretionary, even technology to some extent, suffered relative to the large caps. I think you can view that as one of two ways. One, is this providing an opportunity or has this been the wrong trade to make? And I think the way I look at the data is it's providing opportunity. So we're back down to valuation support and made the, the positive risk reward even more palpable within consumer discretionary. So anything economically sensitive, um, taking a look at anything that is cyclical, tell us what you see in the economy when you see, for instance, the non-farm payrolls that we saw last week, which you know headline was pretty blockbuster, but within it, there's a different story. What, what does that tell us about the economy and therefore cyclical stocks? Yeah, it's funny. I don't love the payroll report, as you know, partly because it's looking at month on month change and the variability within that change. I wouldn't be surprised if that 350 was somewhere between zero and 600, right? So which are very, we think of as very different, but the restatements are actually quite large uh, when you look at those final benchmark revisions. But that said, I think what you are saying is a job market that is slowing, but is not stopping. So you could certainly, there was something for everyone in that household employment was actually contractionary, which was a little bit of a catch up. So I think that it's a job market slowing, but not falling off a cliff. And the question is, do you think that is a positive or is that a negative? Because what it means is the Federal Reserve is going to have to hike further. So when I look back through history, 
you would rather root for stronger growth and even a more hawkish Federal Reserve versus a wipeout slower payroll number, but an accommodated Federal Reserve. Because if the Federal Reserve is cutting, it could be a sign that growth is poor. I mean, there are different ways they have to cut. And once we cro- we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But I don't think that anybody's really rooting from a pro-cyclical perspective or a stock market perspective on massively lower payrolls. But what's really important, I think, in that report is not the payroll number or even the household number or even the unemployment number. It's wage growth. And what we're seeing is a consistent trend of deceleration, especially when you incorporate the work week. So when you look at, we've seen a decline in average hourly earnings, not a decline, a deceleration in average hourly earnings on a decelerating work week. Remember, that's money in the economy. So from that perspective, that has been slowing very consistently. So we are meeting and potentially achieving some of the Fed's goals without having a contraction in unemployment. Is there a slight possibility that when that number came out, that there could have been a moment of Jay Powell saying, <laughs> maybe, maybe this vertical curve in, in terms of the trade-off between unemployment and wage growth. Yes, I think that you know you need to consider the data. I do think that they are data dependent, yeah. and I think that everything we're seeing is growth can still be not strong because I wouldn't characterize it as strong, especially GDI, you know, gross domestic income has now contracted on two sequential quarters and is negative in recessionary territory. You're just not seeing weakness in the employment market, right? So that's the, it's different this time, but a lot of the other recessionary signals we're already seeing. So it's hard to say that, you know, we've achieved a soft landing or I think people are, well, maybe we'll, we'll pull it out into the, to the no landing. But when you look at GDP growth, you know, real GDP growing around 1% and GDI actually contracting and real average hourly earnings being negative, that's not exactly a soft landing anyway. No. So you mentioned earlier in our conversation uh, to stay away from sort of expensive, defensive type stocks. And um, they haven't been great hedges, have they? I mean, it's just sort of an interesting, there, there is this, I want to ask you to comment on the term, this sort of melt up. It, it gets thrown around, but from your yeah. or more grounded approach, um, what are the odds? Yeah, I, th- I think that they're higher than people think. Uh, and in some ways, I, I think that we skewed the risk reward so favorably because we are off cycle this cycle, right? I mean, defensives, started from when we were all waiting for a recession, and this is, you know, sort of back, let's call it six months ago. By that point, defensives have already outperformed by 30 percentage points, which is very atypical, right, in the top 5% of all our history. And they were more expensive to start. And, you know, about 25% more expensive to start than any prior pre-recessionary period. So I think that the margin of safety was very skewed by that market downdraft and a defensive rotation that we've already seen. So therefore, your risk reward, again, when you think of, you know, if the market news is bad, what's my downside risk? You already saw a lot of, you know, peak to trough contraction in the equity market, and you saw a recessionary defensive rotation without a recession. So then you saw the upside. I think you're seeing the upside skew. And that's the melt-up scenario, is that what's my risk to downside? And then what's my risk to upside if 
the events don't turn out to be nearly as bad as the market thinks that it may be. And that's exactly what we're seeing. So people might call that a melt up, but I'd call it a skewed risk reward from stocks being off cycle this cycle where defense priced in a recession before the recession happened. And it may still happen. But now the question becomes off of what level of stocks and at what time? So I think the takeaway for you know the personal investor, from the financial advisor, or you know from somebody who works in equity research, is that really when you think about recession, it is an inherent timing call. That's the part that you actually have to nail to get it right. Not that I will be conservative until it happens, because the risk reward you always have to think about in terms of what if you are wrong and it turns out to be just a little bit later than you expect. What's my upside risk for that? Oh, fascinating. Okay. So I want to ask you one more thing about sort of the cyclical economic discussion, then we'll get into different cap sizes in a second. Um, so within this discussion of, of cyclical, perhaps the economy's okay, there's some growth. Is the commodities complex? We have the oil story, which is sort of its own story, and it did its own things last year. How, how are commodities looking, checking back in with you on metals and various materials? Yeah, different to me. So energy looks different from metals and mining uh, and industrials, I'll say. So if you think about what I like in the market from a risk reward perspective, my top two bets are consumer discretionary and technology. Actually, consumer discretionary is actually bigger than technology even at this point uh, and from a starting point perspective. But I think that there is still opportunity in metals and mining and industrials. Uh, but I do not think that there is opportunity. And as much as we want to sort of tie the two together, I see very different patterns in history. Now, metals and mining have already had slower earnings growth and a contraction in operating margins. Energy stocks have not. Now, I think that that's in some ways what many investors are saying. That is the bull thesis, which is fundamentals are very solid and the stocks are actually cheap. This seems like a no brainer. And when you put those two things together, historically, what you'll find is that's the worst time to own the sector, because almost monotonically, the better fundamentals have been in the past, the worse they are in the future. Meaning that if earnings contract for energy stocks next year, which looks likely to me, given that we've seen a downdraft in the, the rest of the market, so energy is sort of lagging as it typically does the rest of the market, you rarely look through, if ever, I, mean, I guess you have 10, 15% odds. Uh, but you rarely look through that earnings recession in energy land, and w even if your multiples, the starting point of multiples are cheap. So energy is one of the few cyclical sectors or commodity-based sectors where you get trough earnings on trough multiples. You don't see that history in metals and mining. You don't see that in copper. You don't see it in steel. You don't see it in gold, historically. So that's the difference between the two. And that's why commodities are very different. Now, look, like I said, I prefer more rate sensitive, meaning that rates are either lower or steady and disinflationary bets in like technology and consumer discretionary. But within the commodity franchise, I think that there's worse, worse commodities like energy and better commodities. And I don't think that the OPEC cuts are actually positive at all for either crude oil or the energy stocks. You think it's a response to demand? Exactly. I mean, when you backtest it, that's exactly what you see. The more they cut, the more they cut in response to needing to cut, right? right. So the more spare capacity there is. I mean, the market's smart. The market knows that those barrels can come back on, will come back on at a higher price, and might even come back on at a lower price to the extent that, look, if you need to make revenue targets and demand is 
maybe not as robust as it was. I'm not saying demand's going to decline, but not as robust as it was. If we see the globe sort of soften, which is exactly what we're seeing, then maybe you need to reach to produce more. And that's what happens when we see cheating, right? So that's why in some ways the risk reward is actually skewed. The more they cut, the more spare capacity there is, the likelihood of them cheating actually increases. So it all sort of comes full circle. And shale is still producing. Yes, rigs are dropping, but it's partly because of the efficiencies of the system. So I I think that there's always been this narrative out there, as long as I've been presenting on it since 2013, that because there is very little drilling, at some point, shales will not be able to produce. I will tell you that we haven't seen it yet. And at some point that may happen, but I've been hearing that for about a decade. And what I look at is the rig productivity. Rig productivity is higher than any time in the last 15 years. So in some ways, it seems quite rational to have fewer rigs to the extent that demand may actually slow for the product. So I don't see that as as a risky slash negative scenario, at least not yet. Okay, fascinating. Um, When you take a look at what will lead a bear market, a bull market, I mean, there's lots of discussions about what we are doing right now in terms of cycles. We don't really know. It's interesting to look at the different cap structure. So so the tech, obviously, um, those large names anyway, are large, large cap. Um, What's going on in the rest of the market, smaller companies? Yeah, it's been a washout since the, uh, especially since the banking crisis, especially since March. You really saw the small caps and mid caps bear the brunt of that fear that a credit contraction will end up disproportionately affecting small and mid-cap companies. You haven't seen this in the loan data yet. I'm not saying you never will, but right now you're not actually seeing it. So what that has left us with is a very compelling story in both small caps and in mid-caps for very different reasons. So in small caps, what you're seeing now on price-to-book valuation spreads, remember recession, recessionary fear levels, right? You're worried about solvency concerns. We're right back to 2020 highs, meaning that there is as much fear that small caps are going to go bankrupt than we saw in the pandemic and that we saw in the financial crisis. That's wild as in the pandemic. Okay. Yes. This is usually a pretty strong contrarian positive signal, that fear measure. And you're seeing it in conjunction. So that was the spread between stocks in the small cap universe. And I'm putting the non-earners in there. But then on relative price to book versus the bigs, we've now derated to those pandemic lows again. Those pandemic lows were valuation support before, and the cheaper that the stocks are on relative price to book versus the big caps, the higher the odds of outperformance. Remember, there's never any certainty, but there's been a consistent, clear relationship between the two. And I know that fundamentals in the small cap space are quite poor right? Relative earnings have been quite bad because they have 30% non-earners and that's been growing over time. You know, relative operating margins is worse. So this isn't about a secular leadership trend, but it is about the fact that to the extent that you've owned small caps, and I have, would you like to give up on that being the thesis being wrong? Or would you like to sort of hold the course? And the signals that I'm saying are stay the course, because I think that this is more an opportunity Maybe not, you know, again, like go all in from big caps to small caps, but to the extent that you actually have cap spectrum, you know, holdings down the cap spectrum, then I think that the risk reward is still positive. Now, mids are actually 
more of a sweet spot because they don't have the non-earner problem. So what you've seen is now we are at earnings yield highs that we haven't seen since the bubble. Remember, higher is cheap because I just said yield. So relative forward PE versus the bigs, so mids versus the bigs, relative forward PE at bottom decile levels that we have not seen since the bubble. So the stocks are cheap on earnings because they have them. Again, this has been a secular derating for the last, obviously, you know, for the last 10 years. So back to those bubble lows. Again, you know, is this opportunity? And I think that the answer is yes, because that has been clearly correlated to potential outperformance. And mids are a little bit the sweet spot. So if you're worried about the non-earners and small caps, mids do have an earnings story. And in fact, on a median basis in the mid-cap universe, the median stock in the mid-cap universe beats the median stock in the large-cap universe, right? So you actually do have an earnings story. You say back to the tech bubble, that's how long it's yes. been for mid-caps? Yes. Yeah. That is how long it's been for mid-caps. It's funny. I was talking to a mid-cap manager, and she's like, well, if we have this, you know, really potent risk-reward from a valuation perspective, why have they been so bad? And I said, because you've had this secular, you know, headwind for the last decade to get back to these levels. So they've been derating for quite some time. And the question is, have they derated enough? And based on historical data, you might say that the risk-reward now has shifted. This is the opposite that you see in stuff like low vol, right, where low vol was the darling factor over the last decade, where, you know, what you saw was almost regardless of interest rates, regardless of growth, you always wanted to own low vol. But you always wanted to own low vol because the starting point of that a decade ago was because the stocks were cheap. Now the stocks are expensive. And I think that that's back to that margin of safety. If low vol, and it still is, is expensive relative to history, all of a sudden your margin of safety and whether or not defense actually outperforms is more of a problem, right? Even if you have, you know, very soft GDP numbers, which we saw in GDI, the low vol didn't work because relative valuation starting points matter. And I think that that matters for mids. So to the extent that you are exposed down the cap spectrum, I don't think now's the time to give up. It's fascinating. Too late to be bearish on that yep. front, as you yep. sometimes say, I think is a great quote. Um, so a little bit more on the types, how many sectors we have at this point that are in sort of your bottom uh, lot and, and how many are in this broadening story? I mean, is it when you say broadening, are we broadening out to sort of two, three sectors? How much further there to go? Yeah. So what you've seen right now is three sectors lead year to date. And some people tell me that they're all the same play, right? It's technology, consumer discretionary from a large cap perspective, and then communication services, which is all essentially technology. I think that the, the risk reward in terms of broadening out is broadening out to mid caps and small caps, which means the equal weighted more likely than not actually works and broadens out as well. But I think that the other opportunities are in metals and mining, are in industrials, and are in actually financials. So it's not my biggest position, and it's not one that, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of visibility around in terms of what will happen to financials after a banking crisis. But I do think that you are seeing real signs of valuation support. And it's funny because when you think about the financial crisis and the banking crisis and when we saw SVP, SVB um, go under, what we saw is that financials were big underperformers into that, but have actually held their ground more or less since then. 
It's almost that always, right, buy the rumor, sell the news kind of thing. And if you said in the beginning of the year, hey, we're going to have a banking crisis in March, you might be surprised to know that the energy sector on a year-to-date basis is actually worse than the financial sector. Wow. So when you think about it that way, right, I think that that shows you that you are bumping up around valuation support. On a PE basis, banks are now back to levels five to seven times, let's call it, that you saw in the financial crisis, that you saw in the European debt crisis in 2011. And on a relative price-to-book basis, you're now half as cheap as you were in the financial crisis. So again, back to that valuation matters, the starting point matters a lot. Maybe your risk reward is actually more positive than you think, despite the news being bad, because so much is priced in. So in order to sort of put it aside, what is the bearish, the most compelling bearish case that you see circulating? The, to me, and again, this is different, like I'm different than everybody else, because I think that a lot has been priced in, but the most bearish case would be a reacceleration in inflation or a shock from crude oil because of it. So when I look through history, again, there are a lot of people that say, well, you know, we're late in the economic cycle and the next phase is a recession. I think that you have, the way I look at history is that you have always needed a shock for that tipping point into recession. I mean, remember, even the financial crisis, we started seeing very clear cracks in 2005, 2006. Right. So what drove us to recession? I mean, housing prices started to contract in 2005. Right. We're down 30 percent by late 2006. We were already seeing the beginning stages of that. What tipped the consumer into negative territory? The shock from crude oil. And that was the negative spiral that set the bad debt in some ways in motion. So you can sort of tee it up as a like almost a fuse, but you need something to sort of explode. Uh, and that usually, usually that has been inflation or specifically crude oil. So that would be the biggest bear case is a, is a severe reacceleration in inflation, which so far we're not seeing. And until that time, whenever it might be, there's this possibility for the melt up, which you started out right. telling about. Right. It is this wall of worry. And I think that there's, I see too many pundits hanging their hat on the fact that stocks go down when recessions happen. And yes, it's true, but when you think about timing, so the hard landings that we've seen in the past, 1970, 1975, 1980, and 1982, the low in the stock market from 1975 to 1985 was 1978. So the low that we saw in the 1980 recession, which was a short recession, but when we saw inflation accelerate quite a bit, the low in 1980 was higher than the low in 1978. And the low in 1982, when Volcker came great guns for inflation, was higher than the low that we saw in 1980. So in 1978, you could have closed your eyes and like actually accurately predicted two back-to-back recessions, one in 1982, the worst since the Great Depression, and you would have made money in equities. So yes, you're right in terms of equities contract during recessions, but then you have to be prescient on the timing and perfect. So the longer your time horizon, the more likely you are to get it right from a higher level in the equity market. Have we made it to all of your charts? I feel like we've missed one. Is there one that you want to bring up? Oh, let's bring up the, for, the fourth chart, which yeah. is the sector chart. 
And I think that that shows you how sort of narrow breath can actually be almost a sentiment indicator. So what you see is, so for each number on the, on the x-axis, that's the number of sectors that are outperforming the benchmark, right? So you can see it's a very narrow market when one, two, or three sectors are outperforming. We have three right now. Then you look at the forward returns. That's what you see on the y-axis. And you'll see that the more sectors that you have outperforming the benchmark, eight and nine, the lower your odds are of an advancing market and the lower your average returns. And in fact, when you see seven, eight, nine sectors beating the market, which is huge breath, what you actually see is negative returns on average, which is very rare when I look at statistics on average. You hardly get negative returns. You get less positive returns an awful lot, but very rarely less, you know, very negative returns, even on average. So what that shows you is it's almost like breath is a sentiment indicator. So the more sectors that outperform, the more that you have sort of this inherent euphoria, like things are going to be great. And the less sectors that outperform or the more narrow the market, the more skepticism there is embedded in that mathematically. And in some ways, you want the contrarian signal. You want the opposite of that. When there is deep skepticism, you tend to climb that wall of worry. And when there is euphoria or optimism, you tend to have it already all priced. Fascinating on the timing. Oh, my goodness. Denise Chisholm, thank you very, very much for setting us straight yet again. Um, it's great to see you. Always great to be here. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.